0: everybody. Um, I would say it's good to see you, but I can't actually see you, so Um, at all. This is awkward apparently for no one but me, but um, you can see me. I cannot see you. I feel like I'm in, um, I have Jeff Johnson's camera in my face. And the only reason I'm looking in this direction is because I know he's over there. Uh, but when I shoot with him, we do, he does videos for us at Lighthouse. They're fantastic because it's Jeff Johnson. But when we do videos and he has that camera on my face, this is exactly how I feel. Or I think, do you guys just spend time talking about how awkward this is? I'm going, I'm going to keep going. Um, or I feel like this is one of those moments where God is talking to me and the clouds of heaven have parted, thus saith the Lord, and I'm looking at Jesus, that kind of thing. That's how I feel. Um, Okay, my name is Dee, Um, as Debbie said, I'm the pastor at Lighthouse Minneapolis, which is a covenant church plant on the north side, we meet at Olson Middle School, Um, and I have some Lighthouse people here uh, this evening, which is fantastic. Um, This is a thing, this is like a city urban thing, you always come with your crew, okay, (laughs) just welcome to Minneapolis, the table, welcome to Minneapolis. We, We roll with our crew, so the next time you guys go somewhere. Make sure you bring your crew, okay? Um, We just finished a sermon series at Lighthouse called Why I Left the Church. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a synopsis of that sermon series and then talk about how it actually uh, coincides with the sermon series you guys have been on. What is it, traitors and turncoats? Um, And talk about the subversive nature of Jesus. Let me say this. You will likely be offended before I am done. If you are not, I have not done my job. So because I can't see you, there's really no way for me to know. So I'm going to look at Debbie. And Debbie, you shake your head if you're not offended enough, and I will keep going. Uh, And you nod if you are, okay? So you're the only one I can see. How many times have I mentioned how awkward this is? I, you know, okay. Let's keep going. So we are in a crisis in the church. If you do not know that, I'm going to tell you why. We are in a crisis in the church. 59%, Barna says, 59% of young people, once they hit the age of 18, will not return to the church. 59%. Parents in the room, I have two sons. That means one of my kids will not come back to the church after the fact that his mom, who is a pastor, has spent the last 18 years trying to rear him up to understand who Jesus is. Less than 15%, according to Lifeway, less than 15% of church plants in the last nine years, have actually experienced new believer conversions. Less than 15% of church plants in the last nine years have experienced new conversions. I don't know if you know this, but the purpose of church plants in the beginning of the church planting movement was centered on bringing new believers into Jesus Christ. Pews, oh, I love these statistics. These are fantastic. uh, Said this, Um, the percentage of Christians in America fell from 54% in 2008 to 47% in 2014. In 2015, that number dropped to 45%. In 2016, it dropped to 43%. And in the beginning of January 2018, we will have the numbers to figure out how much more it has dropped in 2017. 59% of young people will not return to the church. Less than 15% of church plants actually experience conversion. And the number, the percentage of Americans, and by Americans I mean people in the US of A, we're weird, right? We are the only country that claims to be Americans, even though America is a continent, is it not? I'm confused. Okay, so let's keep going. So, and 43% in 2016 proclaimed to be Christians. What does this mean? This means that we are in a cycle in the church where we are just shifting believers around. We're losing believers at the same time that we're shifting them. So what that means, Larryman's terms, over 85% of church plants are getting their members from other churches. And that number is dwindling. We are in a crisis in the church. At Lighthouse, I just told our group that the church is in crisis, but let me make that more clear. If you look at the churches that Barna, Pew's, and Lifeway actually studied, they studied white American Christian churches. So that means, table, that white Christian numbers are dropping. That 59% of your children will not return to the church. That when the number is skewed again, or surveyed again, sorry, at the end of 2017, then it will be your number. This is who qualifies as Christians in America. Your church is dying. And so I'm going to talk to you this evening about why the church is dying and how the subversive nature of Jesus Christ, that is the gospel, can actually, maybe, potentially transform this issue that we have. This is where it's going to start getting offensive. You guys ready? Good thing I can't see you. (laughs) So unless you throw something at me, I don't, you know, I can't see anything. Okay, that's like seven times now. I'm going for ten here. I'm going for (laughs) ten. What I've come to realize is that the church, I've said this to Lighthouse folks, the church operates like an episode of Chopped. Are you guys familiar with the show Chopped? It is a reality TV cooking show. And in it, these chefs are competing, right, with this mystery box to prove who is the best chef. It's not even to prove that. It's to win $100,000. Sign me up. They have to present three course meals with items from Mystery Box. One of the Mystery Box items one time was pickles, chocolate, and, I don't know, like marshmallow fluff. And I was thinking this is a pregnant woman's dream. <laughs> right? I will eat whatever you create. This is how the church is operating right now. This is how the white Christian church has, is currently operating. As your numbers dwindle and drop, we have begun to compete with one another based upon the items in our mystery box. Who has the best worship? Who has the best kids program? Who's in the coolest location? These are what we are presenting to people, and it's not working. So we have titles like this. I love this. We're fighting for relevance, so our titles include We are Post-Traditional. We are Post-Evangelical. We are Post-Patriarchical. We are the emerging church. Is that still a thing or has that failed already? We are liberal. We are the place where you belong. It's not working. Because if it was, the numbers in the last nine years would not be dropping. They would be increasing. So I'm here as a visitor as an, and also as an African-American woman to tell you that it is your whiteness that is killing the church. I'm not talking about you as an individual. I'm not talking about the color of your skin. I am talking about a system of beliefs, values, and norms that's based upon the ideology of whiteness. That is killing the church. I'm going to prove it to you. Here we go. There was a famous missionary by the name of Donald McGavran who became famous for one thing. He lived in from 19 or I'm sorry 1897 to 1990 and he became popular for what he coined the homogeneous principle. McGavran spent 50 years as a missionary in India and through the work that he did as a missionary in India he began to realize something. A their missionary work wasn't working. So when he began to figure out why is this not working, he came up with this idea. If we stop trying to create or if we stop trying to create churches and ministries in India that actually tore down divisions within inside of the Indian culture and just had people clump together based upon what they are alike in, their churches would get bigger. So instead of actually doing the Christian thing and having to do that whole thing that Paul said, neither are there slave nor free man, rich nor poor, master sort of thing. McGavern said, what if we just have everyone in the same socioeconomic status, everyone in the same town, everyone in the same part of town begin to build churches with one another? And it worked. That is the homogeneous principle is creating and establishing communities based upon their similarities, not based upon the gospel of diversity and what it was that Jesus actually proclaimed. The timing of this is not by coincidence. The same time that McGrathen created this homogeneous principle was the same time of the suburbanization of the white community in our country. Some historians will call it the suburbanization, which is the attaining of the American dream by moving out of the city. Other historians call it white flight. So McGavran's principal left India and came into the United States where he became a professor at a well-known seminary and spent his entire rest of his career as a professor teaching pastors about the homogeneous principle. That if you build your church in accordance to everyone being the same, your churches and your ministries will grow and flourish. This is directly connected to the megachurch movement. This has nothing to do with the gospel. So I want to talk about this a little bit more. They give me a whiteboard because I thought I was going to use it. You know, I thought it was going to be bigger and, you know, I just, okay, let's use this. Can you even see? Because, you know, I can't see anything. That's number Eight. Okay, so the homogeneous principle is based upon what I just said, a system or an understanding of whiteness. We get really touchy in America by talking about white supremacy. I don't talk about white supremacy anymore uh, because most of us tend to think about the Ku Klux Klan when we think about white supremacy. That's ineffective. So I'm just going to talk about whiteness as it pertains. Here's the definition of whiteness. The definition of whiteness is a dominant cultural space with enormous political significance with the purpose of keeping others on the margin. White people are not required to explain to others how white culture works, what it even means to be white, how they identify what whiteness is, but all others are meant to follow the set of norms that have been established by whiteness. The homogeneous principle, when it was introduced into the United States, was also at the same time as the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement. I don't believe in coincidences. So at the same time, let me give you a little bit more history. Most of us think about, myself included, think about the Civil Rights Movement as what, 1965 to 1968, you know, actually began in the 1940s. So at the same time that the underpinnings of the Civil Rights Movement is beginning is the same time that pastors now are going and talking with their congregations and their communities about the homogeneous principle. What this means and how it's connected is that the homogeneous principle is directly connected to this concept of whiteness. If we were in an all-black setting, it would be directly connected to a sense, to the meaning of blackness. But because we're here, we're going to talk about whiteness. What this means is this. This is a massive box. This is what I would call whiteness. You guys following me here? Now, there's a lot of things that fit with inside of this box. I'm going to cover these. Nationalism. How we define what it means to be a good citizen fits in this box. Okay? Homo or hetero, I'm sorry, heteronormativity fits in this box. Patriarchy. Gender roles what we wear, where we live, our sense of humor. Have you ever noticed how everyone here laughs at the same jokes at the same time? Not my jokes, obviously. (laughs) See? Fits in this box. Political affiliation. Emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence fits in this box which is why we have different understandings culturally between different cultural groups about what it means to be emotionally intelligent. Our theology, that's a huge one, our theology fits inside of this box. Now, apart from whiteness, these things can mean different things. But what whiteness does is it holds all of this together. So according to the homogeneous principle, it means when we all gather together, when you all gather together, there's a set of norms that exist here that's based upon your similarity, not actually based upon your difference. This is why churches in America are so segregated. It's because it works. If I come into a church and the worship is a particular way and I'm accustomed to that, then I can continue to come here. It works, so our worship is the same. Do you and the congregation sing? Do you clap? That's already been decided by the homogeneous principle that is based upon whiteness. You guys following me here? Okay. Now let me be very clear about why this is problematic. It's problematic and it is actually killing the church because it is 100% antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. McGavern, in his wisdom, actually said this in one of his writings. He said that while the church in India, mission, missionary work, could grow and expand, he said it's the very thing that causes its expansion that will eventually kill it. It is killing us. Let's talk about why it's antithetical to the gospel message. I'm just going to give you a few examples. I don't really have time to go into all of them. Here's one. The biblical definition of neighbors is what? Jews and Samaritans. Enmity between two groups through generations upon generations. That's the biblical definition of a neighbor. This is why Jesus used the example of the Good Samaritan story is to show Who is my neighbor? It is someone who is not like you. Jesus spent his entire mission, his entire ministry in life going to those that were on the outskirts, not going to everyone that was like him. How many times do we see Jesus at the temple? And the time that we do see him there, what was he doing? Flipping over Jesus' command to the disciples was not, therefore, go and make more churches. It was, therefore, go and make disciples. What does he tell them before he ascends into heaven? The Holy Spirit will come, go into the upper room, and wait for the Holy Spirit. And when the power of the Holy Spirit descends upon you, to do what? To give you power to go into Jerusalem, Judea, and all of Samaria. That's a multicultural, multi-ethnic movement. Jesus literally told them, the Holy Spirit's going to give you power to do ministry with your biblical neighbors. The first thing Peter gets in trouble for after Jesus ascends into heaven is what? He refused to do ministry to the gent- with the Gentiles. Should I keep going? Because I have more examples. The Apostle Paul was the most effective church planter in the history of the church. Why? Because he spent his time doing ministry with home groups, house churches, small communities who were nothing like one another. If you read Paul's messages in context, what you will begin to see is that what's at issue is the fact that so many of these people are so not like one another that he's writing to them to be faithful to the call of Jesus and allow the work of the Holy Spirit to help them melt away the differences that cause them to be fighting with one another. John the Revelator in the book of Revelations gives us an image of the church. It's powerful. It's what we will one day look like. And he says this, And then I saw it. Saw what? A multitude of crowd kneeling before Jesus Christ, and it was every nation, every tongue, every tribe homogeneous churches monocultural monoethnic monoracial churches are that continue and to perpetuate the homogeneous principle is antithetical to the gospel message that should be the end of my sermon that's it What does this mean for the table? Well, when I walk into the table, I walk into the poster child of a homogeneous, principal church. I see a church that has incredible and incredible heart. I know some of you personally. You have an incredible heart. You are committed to the city. The bravery that it took to leave where you were to plant here, I'm not trying to belittle or downplay any of it. But as long as you remain a monocultural, monoracial, monoethnic church, you will continue to perpetuate the very thing that Jesus spent his entire life trying to break. He opened up his hands and his arms to welcome everyone. Right? We have those signs. All are welcome here. I hate those signs. I don't actually know a person of color that actually would validate them being there because it's a perpetual reminder for us that we aren't actually welcomed here. My challenge for you all would be this. As you continue to be a church in the city, are you willing to actually do the work to address what is the elephant in the room? The homogeneous principle. You are in a new location. There's a lot of younger, millennial people in this room. New wineskin, same old wine. What will it take for you guys to be new wineskin, new wine? New wine that permeates the land that you are on and saturates the city. Because the conversations we have, I have with my friends on the outside, the conversations that pastors of color have is oh no, here we go again. So, I'm going to give you one example, two examples of what you can do. The first is this. This is a conversation that we've, we've started to have at Lighthouse. This is, this is, it sounds simple, but actually it really isn't. Um, we've been talking about what it means for us to change some of the things that we've taken for granted about when we walk into the church. From who's greeting outside, what are we saying, how are we interacting with people, to what is our worship experience. We are by no means, we have not at Lighthouse, we have not figured it out at all but we are intentional about having this conversation because unless we are intentional about actually being a multiracial, multiethnic multi-ethnic community we will continue to fail to reach our neighbors if they don't feel comfortable coming in our doors and being with our people we have failed I don't want to continue to recycle old believers in my church I want to see people come to Jesus Christ for the first time that is why I planted a church because I believe it's still possible. So you have to do the work and actually asking the questions, bringing in consultants who are willing to help your community. What does it look like? I'll give you one example. You guys use the language of tribe here, don't you? Do you know what a tribe is by Google definition? Somebody, throw it out. What is a tribe by Google definition? Anybody? People who share commonality in blood. So when you communicate that you are a tribe and you are all white what are you communicating to someone like me that's not a rhetorical question what are you communicating to someone like me that i don't belong that i'm not i can't be a part of this tribe i don't share blood and i don't say in the same commonality of your skin tone that is what's being communicated so think about the language that you use at lighthouse we learned the very First year, that if you say picnic to our group, all of our black people will not show up. But if you say cookout or grill, they will come. Language matters. Language matters. My last question is this. I, I, I want you to be able to move beyond the politically correct things to do to address your whiteness because I can give you a list of the politically right things. Read the right books, have pastors like me come in and speak, me and Siri, who's in the back, who you have to meet because she's fantastic. We're teaching a class. That's the politically right thing to do. That's what everybody does. Let me give you something that's a lot harder. Actually ask yourselves this question. This is for the leadership of this community. Why would God, in a time that is so divided around along racial lines, where we still have the Ku Klux Klan, in a time where I was at the movie theater, the trailer for Black Panther came on, and this guy leaned over to his friend and said, we're boycotting that movie because it's black supremacist. Okay, uh, boycott it. Me and my family, we're going to be there. So why would God, in a time that is so divided around racial lines, in an era where our churches are dying, literally, Why would he use an all-white church to be effective in the city? See how hard that is to actually ask ask that question and have to wrestle with that? In the face of numerous of other people who could plant a church, why would he choose the table? And what is it that you can do that will be different from the very places you've left? Why would he choose you? I don't know. But if you don't actually start wrestling with these questions and addressing this, you will forever appear to not be welcoming, not be accepting of someone that's like me. Side note, I'm about as assimilated as possible when it comes to, and culturally competent as it comes in terms of being an African American. Why would Pookie and Ray Ray come to this church when D. McIntosh, who knows you and knows this ministry, doesn't even feel completely comfortable here? Why would he use this community to impact the city? So, everybody take a breath. I'm done. I'm going to pray for us because I I actually don't have a conclusion for my sermons. I, I usually don't because my hope is that I have poked and prodded at you enough where you actually take me seriously and do the work. Two things usually happens when I preach sermons. The first is that a group of people will completely disregard everything that I say. I don't care. That's normal. The second is that you'll rush to a quick and easy answer. And that's just as effective as the first. My prayers for this community, especially because I know you, would actually sit with this and wrestle with this. Because the best part about the Apostle Paul was this. God chose a Jewish man who spent his life persecuting Christians to be the best church planter, the most effective church planter, To the Gentiles. So, if God could use the Apostle Paul, he can use the table. But he will not use you unless you are willing to wrestle with the questions that I have asked. Okay, let's pray. Um, Lord, you know, you're good. Thank you for this opportunity to be with this community. And I, you know, thank you, Jesus. Thank you that in the midst of who we are, you are still God and you still do your work. So, Lord God, we just ask that you would help us on our journey. Humble us, God, so that we can be used by you. And, Lord God, now that it's come to my mind, I just want to take a moment, Lord God, to pray for the church in Texas has experienced the loss of lives through someone entering into their church and shooting. Last I checked, Lord God, the numbers were upward to 25 people. Father, God, it is a travesty when the church is no longer a safe space, whether through intentionality, intentionality, unintentionality, or by brute force. Father God, I ask for your mercy and for your love and for your arms to surround all of the families of those who have lost loved ones. Be with them in their trauma and their pain. And oh God, may you rise up your believers from other churches in that community to surround this church. And I pray these things in Jesus Christ's name, amen.